December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's history. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The events. The figures. I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The drama. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooks. The deep question. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. The United Nations has been in the news a lot lately. And I thought maybe it would be interesting to do a program on the UN and look into its history a little bit and its mission and the root causes for the founding of the organization. And it doesn't take very long once you start delving into the history books and whatnot to realize that the UN is not that interesting an organization to study when compared with the organization that led up to the UN's founding. The proto-UN, as I like to call it, is in a sense much more interesting than the UN because it's truly a revolutionary break from the past, whereas the United Nations was an attempt to give the predecessor, the failed predecessor, a second chance, a new and improved version of the predecessor. The predecessor to the United Nations was something called the League of Nations. And the League of Nations is truly interesting to look at because whereas the UN wasn't really new, the League of Nations was unprecedented. A complete departure from anything the world had tried previously. And if you look at the specifics, even a more ambitious idea than the UN would eventually turn out to be. One of the things that the League of Nations experience taught the world was that it was too ambitious to work. So the UN kind of a pared down version of the League of Nations. The League of Nations is very interesting. And to understand the League of Nations, you have to understand where it came from. First of all, let's talk about the idea. The idea of the League of Nations seems like the most common sense idea you could ever come up with if you were sitting in a room with a bunch of peers and you were trying to figure out a way to improve the world. One of the problems that you would inevitably finger is the fact that there wasn't any sort of arbiter or judge or ombudsman, if you will, to 
handle disputes between nation states because before the League of Nations, nation states were the highest authority. Nobody could tell a nation what to do except for a more powerful nation. And if it was too onerous a demand, there'd be war. Or if the nations wouldn't agree who was more powerful, there'd be war. And the reason the League of Nations even came up as an idea was that there had been a war, a terrible war, the worst war in the history of the world. And if you look at history, it's often interesting to note that when human beings go through terrible wars, particularly bad wars, that something in the human psyche seems to strive for something redemptive to come out of it. The worse the war, the more human beings at the end of it seem to try to make it, you know, the last of its kind. When the terrible 30 years war ended in the 1600s, the participants sat down afterwards and were so shocked by the damage wrought by that conflict that they sought to come up with treaties and agreements that would help prevent anything like that from ever happening again. And out of that came something called the Treaty of Westphalia, which is the treaty that solidified the fact that the nation-state was the sovereign entity that the world was going to be based on. Before Westphalia, there were a lot of kingdoms and duchies and principalities. After the Treaty of Westphalia in the mid-1600s, it was the era of the nation-state that we entered into. But the reason you even had a Treaty of Westphalia was because you had had this terrible, horrible war with tons of atrocities that went on forever and ruined whole countries in the middle of Europe. So the people afterwards tried to salvage something positive out of that and try to see to it that what we just went through didn't happen again. Same thing happened after the terrible Napoleonic Wars, too. The victorious powers got together in something called the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Same thing, a real human need to sit down and try to figure out a way to avoid a reoccurrence of what they had just gone through, a terrible, murderous, devastating series of wars. And the 1800s, you know, after the Napoleonic Wars ended, was a period when man was striving towards some sort of a higher goal in terms of peace and cooperation and something that was called collective security and something else that was referred to as international law. Ideas were popping up all over for ways to make war obsolete. And if not obsolete, then at least more limited and more humane. The most famous, probably the most famous philosopher and probably the most influential philosopher of the Age of Enlightenment in the 1700s, early 1800s, Immanuel Kant was probably the first person to ever come up with the term League of Nations. And he was trying to figure out a way you could have something greater authority speak, authority-wise, than the nation-states, so that when nation-states had disagreements, somebody could step in and solve them before a catastrophic war broke out. And then there were other things like, well, for example, the Hague 
conferences in the 1800s, which were intended to make war less horrible. I mean, on one hand, you had people trying to find the mechanisms to create agencies that would make war an option you never had to resort to. That's what Immanuel Kant was up to. But you also had groups that were trying to say, well, if you're going to have a war, we're not going to use dum-dum bullets. And if you're going to have a war, we're not going to take the new technology that's being developed that will allow poison gas to be a battlefield weapon to be used. And we're not going to let people drop bombs on cities from hot air balloons. All these things were dealt with in the 1800s as sort of part of a two-pronged approach to fixing the international system, right? We're going to try to eliminate the need for wars because we're going to have organizations that deal with that. And then if wars do break out, we're going to eliminate or modify uh, how terrible they're going to be. And agencies like the Red Cross spring up from the 1800s. It was an interesting era in terms of the development of the international system and the idea that armaments might be bad and might bring on wars. And the idea that civilians could be involved in conflicts. I mean, it was a progressive era, I guess you could say. And then we had the most terrible war the world had ever seen break out in 1914. What we call the First World War now was simply referred to as the Great War until the Second World War. Because everyone knew what you meant when you said the Great War. And so much of the old world died during the Great War. I find the First World War to be one of the most amazing occurrences in history. First of all, like most wars, the change that you see from the beginning of the war to the end of the war, a mere four years from 1914 to 1918, is unbelievable. You look at the photos of the sorts of people that marched off to war in 1914, and they looked like people from the Napoleonic era. The uniforms, the standards, the style of dress, the weapons, everything had a very, to our modern eye, old-fashioned appearance. Four years later, the uniforms look modern. The weapons look modern. The fighting looks modern. You see, I mean, you have tanks and aircraft and gas and all sorts of horrific modern developments a mere four years after the armies marched off wearing white gloves, carrying swords, riding horses. It was interesting. It was the death of the old world and the beginning of the modern world. And I've always thought that it's going to be really interesting how historians a thousand years from now look at our current century. Because what happens is over time, time compresses. You look back at what was going on in the Roman Empire, and you really only hit the high points of a century. And we all know, because we're all living through one right now, how many little important events happen in a century, but a thousand years from now, they'll only hit the high points. And I imagine that the period we're living in now will be viewed by historians a thousand years from now as simply still trying to consolidate what's happened to us since World War I. We're still ironing out the world that World War I turned topsy-turvy. And World War I unleashed all sorts of forces that we're still dealing with today. Communism, 
arose and took power in what became the Soviet Union because of the, sec of the First World War. Fascism grew out of the seeds planted in the First World War. There's a lot of things that the First World War unleashed. It was like a Pandora's box. There was a line from a British politician as the war was breaking out who said, I fear that the lamps are being put out all over Europe, and I think we shall not see them lit again in our time. And I don't think we've seen them lit again, as that politician would define it, yet. So we go through the greatest war of all time. Millions die. The old order is overthrown. And as the war is ending and winding down, there is already that same human need coming into play that we saw earlier into history after other great wars, a need to see to it that we do something to see that this doesn't happen again. Some mechanism needs to be put into place to assure that whatever errors led up to this horrific holocaust, that we don't do, that we don't do that again. We do not repeat the same mistakes. Too many people died, too much treasure wasted. And there was also a feeling that there was a huge amount of stupidity involved and a lack of international systems which could have dealt with the problems of pre-World War I Europe before they got so bad that there had to be a World War I. And the big prime mover for this reform was the U.S. president at the time, a man named Woodrow Wilson. Wilson has been called by historians an idealist. And I think that there's really no doubt that in a lot of ways he was. Matter of fact, Wilson came to the presidency after heading up one of the nation's great university systems. So he came from academia. And I think there's a temptation sometimes in academia to sit there with a blackboard and a bunch of other intelligent people and think that if you just did A, B, C, D, and E, you could fix the world. And there were politicians in Great Britain who were also sympathetic to some of the ideas um, that Wilson eventually adopted. And one of these ideas was for some sort of an international system that would be greater and more powerful and have more authority than individual nation states, right? The arbiter, the referee, the ombudsman between countries. When the United States entered the First World War in 1917, very near the end of the war, the other participants were exhausted. And the U.S. entering the war was the thing that turned the tide. Already the U.S. had been funneling lots of money to the Allies, and the Allies were France and Great Britain and some other nations, propping them up financially so they could continue the war effort. By the time we sent tons of young, fresh troops over to fight in France, um, the conclusion of the war was basically foregone. And this gave Wilson a heck of a lot of power to push his agenda, and his agenda was peace. Interesting to try to push peace while the war is still going on, but what Wilson did was try to end the war earlier than it would have ended if you had to kill every last member of the Central Powers, which was the opponent of the Allies in the war, the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, the Turks were the Central Powers. And he came up with something called the 14 Points. And this was going to be Wilson's manifesto for a just peace following 
That would be the structure to create a just world. And again, this is why I find the League of Nations so much more interesting than the UN, because it was a radical departure from anything human beings had tried on a global scale before. What Wilson was trying to do, ladies and gentlemen, was end war. And the way he was going to do it was by setting up a just peace and then a league of nations along the lines first proposed by Immanuel Kant that would provide collective security for the world. If one rogue power attacked someone else, the league would be there to help. And in the typical attitude of the time, Wilson did not really envision the League going to war against this rogue power, but simply banding together to make them a pariah around the world, have economic sanctions against anyone who waged aggressive war, cut off supplies, send aid to their opponents, and denounce them in front of world opinion. There were a lot of built-in assumptions to what this League of Nations would be able to do. Now, the first thing that happened was that the people in Europe were lukewarm, at best, to Wilson's idea. The war was winding down in Europe, and his 14 points plan looked remarkably lenient on Germany and the Central Powers. France especially was in no mood for any kind of what Wilson would have called a just peace. They wanted a harsh peace with a punished Germany and a peace treaty that kept Germany from ever rising again. Let's not forget, France had already fought a war that they lost in 1870 against Germany. And now the 1914-1918 war, even if France came out as a victor, they looked like a loser in terms of the number of battle deaths the damage to the French economy, that the damage to the French countryside, which has not even been repaired today. There are huge tracts of France along the French-German border that are still uninhabitable because of the unexploded ordnance that's littering the area from the First World War. France was in no mood to be conciliatory. But nobody had a lot of choice. Wilson held the strings. The U.S. was funding everything. The U.S. was the power that came in and essentially provided the manpower to provide the last big push that ended the war. So Europe reluctantly went along with whatever they had to as part of Wilson's plan. They got Wilson to get rid of many of his 14-point proposals. The peace treaty that was foisted upon the Germans was harsher than Wilson would have liked, and he turned out to be right about how a harsh peace would create the conditions for another war. But what he was able to push through was this idea of a League of Nations. A group of the world's countries who would get together and meet in Geneva, Switzerland, to iron out the differences of the nation-states and provide some sort of an arbiter who could decide if State A or State B was in the right, and then provide conditions for a settlement. And early on in the League of Nations history, by the way, they were able to accomplish some of those goals. There was a lot of ironing out that needed to be done after the First World War. Empires that had existed for 
hundreds of years were now gone, replaced by smaller national groupings of peoples who had territorial claims on neighbors. A lot of that had to be ironed out, and the League of Nations proved initially pretty good at finding compromises and diplomatic solutions to some of those problems. The first snag, though, that the League of Nations hit was that the United States decided not to join. A shocking development, considering that it was the President of the United States who, by sheer force of will, had gotten the League of Nations on the agenda, and then you couldn't even get the U.S. legislature, the Congress and the Senate, to go along with it. Now, I've read all sorts of books that claim that animosity between, personal animosity, between Democrat Woodrow Wilson and Republican um, Henry Cabot Lodge was responsible for this. But that ignores the fact that if you try to establish the League of Nations today, the United States Congress and Senate would not vote to join. And that's because of the amount of sovereignty that the League of Nations superseded. And this is a problem that's been bedeviling those who want collective security forever. When you talk about collective security, the idea is that nations would band together to protect the victims of aggression. But it requires somebody like the League of Nations to be able to tell other nations, say the United States, that Germany's getting out of control and you need to provide some troops to help us nip their aggression in the bud. Nobody in the United States Congress and Senate wanted to do that. That might be an exaggeration. There were certainly those who were willing to vote for it. It was a very idealistic time after a very traumatic event that people wanted to see never happen again. At the same time, there were issues of constitutional questions. Could Americans really cede the authority to send American boys to die somewhere else to anybody higher than the president and the Congress? Legitimate questions that would probably keep us from joining a similar organization today. But in Europe, they had even more base disagreements with the idea of a League of Nations. Let's not forget that Britain and France, and a lot of people in Britain favored the League of Nations, but Britain and France both had large overseas colonies. And the idea behind a League of Nations involved things like self-determination. You were going to go to places and you were going to say, well, you know, you are a sovereign people and you should have your own state and you should be able to govern your own affairs. The French and the British didn't really like that when it came to colonial peoples that they had no intention of allowing to judge their own affairs. So once again, real world concerns interfered with the idealistic notion that you could have this organization that could tell nation states how it's going to be. If the League of Nations was going to tell Britain that they had to give up control of Egypt, Britain wasn't going to go for that. If it said that the French were being unfair to the Algerians that they ruled over, or the Indo-Chinese that they ruled over, France didn't want to hear that. And these sorts of things became apparent pretty early on. By 1931, you had the Japanese, who were a member of the League of Nations, uh, attacking the mainland Chinese in what's Manchuria now. When the League of Nations complained about that, the Japanese simply said, we disagree, we feel that we're being discriminated against and we're pulling out of the League of Nations. 
and the League of Nations was unable to do anything about that. That was a pattern that would be repeated over and over again. The idealism that was the sea that the League of Nations sprang from seemed to diminish as the First World War's memory became farther and farther removed from world affairs. I mean, in 1919, everybody was gung-ho for something that would prevent another world war. By a decade or two later, people were starting to think about themselves and their own policies and their own directions and their own desires, and the war was becoming less and less of a specter looming over what everyone did. Never mind the fact that the people without legs and arms and faces all mangled were still walking the streets of all the European nations for everyone to be reminded about. The war was becoming a thing of the past, and real-world concerns right in our face were intervening. And one of those real-world concerns was the growth of nationalism. And this is something I think that the Woodrow Wilsons and the educators and the common-sense people who got together in rooms and tried to figure out ways common sense ways we could avoid disagreements and conflicts that led to the deaths of millions of people. Those folks assumed certain things. One was rationality. They assumed a certain amount of rationality would be around. And forces that were unleashed by the First World War proved to be the enemies of rationality. Human beings are sometimes irrational, and if you don't factor that into your thinking, your thinking's going to be proven wrong a lot of the time. And that may be, if you wanted to find one of the main root causes for the failure of the League, that might be root cause number one. The fact that they assumed a certain amount of rationality on the part of man, and we were entering into an era where irrationality ruled. And one of the forces that prompted irration irrationality was nationalism. Nationalism, of course, the idea of the primacy of your nation and your people and your heritage and your culture. And there was nationalism before the First World War, and it led in part to the First World War. They were very aware of the idea of nationalism. What they weren't so ready for was things like fascism. Fascism, ladies and gentlemen, sprang up in Italy first with Benito Mussolini in 1922, and then, of course, in Germany and in Spain with Franco. And fascism contradicted many of the basic tenets that were in play that helped form the United, I mean, the League of Nations. Tenet number one was that war was bad. League of Nations believed in things like disarmament, right? There were a lot of disarmament conferences from the First World War up until the Second World War. Treaties on how many naval ships you could build how large armies could be, attempts to cut stockpiles of weapons because the people involved in the League of Nations and the peace-loving folks of the world had determined that one of the root causes of the First World War was armament production. So they worked real hard to see to it that war was devalued. War's a bad thing. Armaments lead to war, so armaments are a bad thing. We're going to do everything we can to eliminate all of that. But nobody accounted for the fact that there were going to be movements that sprang up after the First World War that not only thought war was okay, but thought it was the desirable condition to have, the natural condition of man, instead of a dehumanizing force, a redeeming force. 
That's what fascism taught. War was a good thing. And not only was it a good thing that built a stronger, more cohesive people, it was something to use to get back what was perceived to be stolen from some of these countries at the end of the First World War. Italy had gripes about the peace treaty. They were on the winning side in the First World War and didn't get what they thought was their due. Benito Mussolini played upon that. Germany, of course, had lots of reasons to be upset with the harsh peace that hurt Germany in the post-war era. And Hitler played upon the fact that the Germans had actually never had their capitals occupied by the enemy during the war and played upon an idea that they were stabbed in the back and then played upon an idea that war would redeem them as a people. That's why you had such a martial tinge to fascism because they weren't afraid of being taken over by their neighbors. They thought war was an inherently good thing and that martial peoples were more vigorous peoples who would assert their presence on the world stage. So you had this conflict between the idealism of the Wilsonites and the nationalism of very proud nation states. You had the common sense idea that war is bad and we should have organizations that help prevent it, butting up against the ideas of the fascists who believed that war was a good thing and that no one should tell you what to do and that the law of the jungle is what the law of nations should be and that anyone that told your nation what to do was something to be resisted. And this is also something that's interesting. The whole idea of the League of Nations was seen by the fascists as a weakness of the West. The idea that we wouldn't want to fight, that we would want to live in peace, was seen by the Adolf Hitlers and the Benito Mussolinis and the Francisco Francos as part of our degeneracy. And they went back into history and noted that the powers that rose in the world were the tough, strong ones who could conquer their enemies. And the powers that faded in the world were the weak ones who could not. And they saw the League of Nations as symbolic that the West was decaying. That's not something Woodrow Wilson ever foresaw. How could you foresee the irrationality of fascism in 1919? How could you foresee the inability of the world to come together to stop obvious threats to world security like Adolf Hitler? in 1919, because in 1919, everyone and their brother would have been ready to stop the next Adolf Hitler because the war was so fresh in everyone's mind. The damage, the carnage, the horrific nature, the destruction was fresh. By the time Hitler rose to power in the 30s, that was becoming a faded memory. The depression that everyone had just gone through was much more recent. And the idea that the country could be built up from within and a new spirit emerged through war, through violence, through nationalism, was taking hold. And fascism was based in large part upon irrationality and emotions rather than the kind of thinking that was so prevalent amongst those who designed the League of Nations. Now, the League of Nations, ladies and gentlemen, was not just idealistic. It was idealistic on steroids. If you want an example of what I'm talking about, at one point the League had voted to create a new international language in the world. It was called Esperanto. 
And the idea was that all the nations of the world were going to teach their young people how to speak Esperanto. And eventually, in a generation, everyone could talk to everyone. And again, this would facilitate cooperation and understanding. If you read the quotes from Woodrow Wilson about the League of Nations, they are high-minded university talk is what we would call them today. Admirable in every way, shape, and form. Trying to take humankind to another level. But I would make the case that the United Nations that was set up and envisioned by Wilson is something that would be ahead of its time, too far ahead of its time, even today. And in 1919 was, unfortunately, a case of the world looking at possibilities through rose-colored glasses in the hopes, the very human hopes, to avoid the tragedy that they had just gone through. And while Britain and France and the rest of Europe may have realized that the League of Nations was too idealistic to succeed, they required American money and American support and American troops. Too much to say no. So when did we know that the League was in trouble? Well, it became apparent that there was going to be problems when it was unable to prevent aggressive war. And it was the nations who ended up being the Axis powers of the Second World War who made this most plain. We already mentioned Japan's invasion of Manchuria, which the League was unable to stop. Benito Mussolini's Italy invaded some African territories in Abyssinia, for example, used mustard gas on the natives, machined gunned them from airplanes, put 400,000 Italian fascist troops in Abyssinia, and the League was unable to stop them. As a matter of fact, the League was unable even to get the British and the French to support their efforts to stop them, because the British and the French were suggesting that that would just be a great incentive for Mussolini to ally with Hitler, which he eventually did anyway. But you could see that if you can't get the very powers who would benefit the most from having a League of Nations operating to support their efforts, that you're doomed already. The League had no power without the individual nation's support, and they found that they often didn't have that support. And Britain and France also understood that if you start going down the road that the League was taking you down, that eventually both Britain and France would be in the League's sights for their colonies and the way that they ran their empires. And of course the U.S. had not joined. So the League continued to putter around longer and proved itself unable to deal with German rearmament. Same problem who was going to provide the muscle that the League needed to enforce their dictates. And something else became apparent, too, that was not apparent in 1919. The idea of economic sanctions as a stick to compel nations into good behavior sounded really good in 1919. But when tried, it proved to be less effective than anyone had anticipated. Other powers would trade with the offending nation that had been cut off by the League, thereby sort of circumventing the whole idea of starving them into, you know, thinking right thoughts and behaving correctly. But besides that, many nations, in the same spirit 
actually, that the League was set up in, didn't want to make matters worse in the same way that Britain and France did not want to punish Italy with economic sanctions because they thought it might make Italy more radical, seeking more help from more radical regimes like Adolf Hitler. That's another problem that the League had. This idea that disarmament was beneficial also hurt the League. It's a funny dichotomy that in order to prevent war, the League encouraged disarmament and peacefulness and seeking ways other than violence and conflict to achieve your goals, and yet ran into problems where the only way to achieve their goals would have been the threat of rearming and violence and conflict. I mean, who was going to stop Adolf Hitler from remilitarizing remilita the Rhineland if it didn't involve troops? But the League had been set up with the basic idea that that was the wrong way to confront problems. That's how you confronted problems in 1914, and look what kind of a war came out of that. The League didn't want to go there, and yet the fascists and the nationalists and people like that were not going to simply be talked out of what they wanted. They thought war was good. That already was more than the League was ready to handle. Nobody envisioned anybody getting out of World War I, going a generation or two, and then deciding, you know what, war's not a bad thing. War's a good thing. The League of Nations falls apart right there. The League of Nations falls apart when you realize there was no military component to enforce its dictates. The League falls apart when you realize that the economic sanctions that were considered to be the main tool it was going to use to enforce good behavior didn't work. And the League fell apart when it became apparent that many of the founding members that the League counted upon to work didn't buy into the idealism to begin with. France and Britain would not have joined that League would not have sanctioned that league, would not have created that league had they had a choice. Woodrow Wilson didn't give him the choice, and then the U.S. ends up not joining anyway. When the league failed to prevent the Second World War, it ended up getting wrapped up into the United Nations, what became the United Nations. In 1942-43, the Allied powers started referring to themselves in the war as the United Nations. And in 1945, when the war ended, the victorious powers kept the name United Nations, incorporated elements of the League of Nations into its new agency, and tried to tinker with its basic makeup, its design, its structure, its powers, to see to it that it would do its job next time, because after all, the League had been formed to prevent the catastrophe of the First World War from happening again, and it did happen again, and it was worse, and so after the Second World War, that same human need to do something, to see to it that that whole conflict you just fought wasn't in vain, and that it will never be repeated, came out, and that's what the United Nations was all about. And things like the Security Council was an example of trying to remedy some of the idealism of the League of Nations. The UN was supposed to be a more down-to-earth, realistic League of Nations that realized that you could run into powers that thought war was a good thing, that realized that economic sanctions alone would not stop a determined aggressor, and that realized that the only way to get the big powers on board is if you gave them some way to protect their prerogatives. That's what the Security Council was all about. Because had France and Great Britain been allowed to conduct their empires as they wished to, they might have been more in line with the idea of preventing violent war. And the United Nations was an attempt to 
make the League of Nations more realistic and less idealistic. The jury's still out on how that's going, by the way. But in 1950, when the North Koreans streamed over the border and invaded their neighbors to the south in South Korea, the president of the United States, Harry Truman, went to war and took the United States into a war under the auspices of the United Nations, called it a police action and involved several other UN countries and flew the UN flag with their American flags in the military. This was something that was a departure right there from what the League of Nations had ever done. And the fact that nuclear weapons had been introduced in 1945 seemed to make the stakes even higher than they were at the end of the First World War. It could be the destruction of the world this time if the international community didn't get their act together this time. And that's what the UN was attempting to be, although nobody was talking about creating an international language like Esperanto anymore. It was a little bit more down to earth than that. So basically the League of Nations, I would say, was ahead of its time. I think that there's value in idealism and that what Woodrow Wilson and people like him was were trying to do was to take humankind to a time beyond war and beyond conflict and beyond even the idea of nation states to a sort of a world community. An idea that nations themselves were impediments to people coexisting peacefully. And I would just say that what Woodrow Wilson envisioned is still not ripe for fruition yet. He was ahead of his time by maybe centuries. Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com.